Well, hello, friends, and welcome to the third season of I Swear on My Mother's Grave podcast. And for all you mothers out there who are listening today, happy, happy Mother's Day. And for those of you thinking about someone who's missing today, or absent from your life, or struggling to become a mother yourself, I am hugging you through this microphone and hoping that you are listening today because you want to and that this is a good healing choice. And know that if at any point during this episode you want to tap out, you want to turn it off, you want to start it up in a week, great, please do so. Listen to what feels good for you today and also remember that I won't even know. So turn it off if you need to. But welcome and know that this episode is special because it's the beginning of our third season, yes, but it's my first time talking to a living mother-daughter duo. The mom is alive, she lives in Oregon, and she is extraordinary. I have wanted to talk to a mother-child pair for a while now to sit on the mic with them as they talk about legacy together and raising children, their ancestors, end of life, and how we talk about our mothers to our mothers. And of course, as we know, and as this whole podcast has taught me, there are a lot of complicated maternal relationships with many layers, and it morphs over time. Mine sure did, during and after my mom's lifetime. And I am sure I could have chosen hundreds of mother-child duos to chat with. Well, maybe not hundreds, because not everyone wants to talk about their own death. But it is not lost on me that I chose a mother and daughter duo who are very close and very open with each other and are almost best friends. Because that was not my story. But what was lost on me up until the Saturday before I recorded this episode was that I scheduled this interview on April 16th, which is my mom's death anniversary. Like, what? I, ha I had no idea, and I just put it right there on the Excel spreadsheet. Episode 1, April 16th, I'll do the conversation. And I had almost completely forgotten about this anniversary until that Saturday night when I remembered, and then I immediately felt this rush of anxiety, like, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. A mother-daughter duo conversation on that day, and they love each other a lot. And it's one of my first larger interviews that I've done since I've decided to come back, and I don't know the mother that well, and it's a Sunday evening, and I'm tired, and oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. I knew I had to shower and look put together for this because a mother was joining the call, and my mother would have wanted me to look nice. So I curled my hair, put on earrings, makeup, and logged on. And immediately the daughter told me that her mother might be a few minutes late as she was putting on her eyebrows for the call because she wanted to look presentable as well. And right then I knew that, yeah, yep, this was where I was supposed to be today, on my own mother's death anniversary, with them. In this episode, a mother and a daughter are going to try to remember a fight they had. Yep, they're going to struggle to find one example. They're going to discuss suicide and personal end of life together, so please take care while listening. They're going to talk about making art and teaching children, and they are going to thank the universe that somehow they got to be together in this one lifetime. And I, I'm just going to be along for the ride. A ride that took me through my own internal emotions and made me really miss my mother while being deeply jealous of them and overwhelmingly happy to witness these two people's affection and support for each other. Yeah, the podcast tagline says complex maternal loss people. So here it is. 
friends. This is Anna Artizoni and Diane Condrat, daughter and mother. I just wanted to say thank you for both being here. And it is our pleasure. Oh, yeah. Amazing. And Anna said that you would do it, Diane, if you didn't have to talk about your own death the whole time. So, <laughs> oh, super, super. Yeah. I guess it hasn't happened yet. So I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure how yeah. that's going to transpire. Yeah. We'll see how that works. <laughs> this is going to be a two parter. We'll have right, this exactly. one and then, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. We'll meet again for the We'll meet one. again in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And will I have things to say? <laughs> You'll have wow, wow, so wow. many dogs, just a fleet of pugs that will follow oh. you like little oh. fat bison. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to ask you both before we started, if if somebody came up to you on the street today, Anna and Diane, you can answer separately, and said, how would you describe your relationship with your mother or your daughter right now, today? Quickly, how is your relationship? What would you say to them? The best. Mm. Lucky. So lucky. When I talk about Anna, nobody believes that she's that great. I start to talk about her and I describe her and then I describe her more and I can see the veil over their eyes come down. It's like, yeah, because Anna's a superb spirit and a superb human and I am so lucky. Thanks, Mom. What does a superb spirit mean to you? What does that mean? Well, once upon a time, long time ago, when Anna was a little baby, uh, and I mean little Part baby, one. <laughs> she, could, she could sit up, but she was a baby. I would be at the grocery store and have her in the little bucket there, and not not the carry a baby, because I carried Anna and Nick both in my arms and Fuck the carry all. Anyway, <laughs> uh, she would be she would be in the little basket, and she would hear a baby crying at the supermarket, and she would perk up her ears like a dog, and start looking around for the baby. And then I would say, "You want to go see that baby?" And I would find the crying baby and push her over by it. And as soon as she saw the baby, it would stop crying. I thought that was a great game, and so we played it all the time, and it never failed. Anna is tremendously empathic. Uh, I assume to her detriment uh, Mm. in some cases, uh, but I saw that when she was a tiny baby and the fact that she is an unconscious healer, I'd say. Mm. Uh, Or are you semi-conscious? Are you semi-conscious, Anna? I'm semi-conscious right now, (laughs) currently. Yes, I am semi-conscious at this moment. Anna, do you remember those moments as a kid? No. It no. was way before I was talking, way before oh, yes. anything. I was little, tiny, tiny. Mm. Yeah, she was, uh, I would say, probably a year old when I first started to see that yeah. happen. And now you're a so, teacher, yeah. so do you think that's part of it? I mean, this yearning, right? Yeah. I mean, I still try to find the crying children now. And yeah, and sometimes they've got to cry it out. But other times it's like, why don't we listen to a little music while you're crying too? And maybe a hug yeah. would help. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say lucky, is that for you, Diane, like because your relationship with your mom was complicated? Oh, no. I I think the lucky aspect is because most of the people I talk to, they, they are so sassy about, well, you know, 
mothers and daughters. Oh, dear. <laughs> and it's like, oh, she was great until she was a teen. Then I yeah. couldn't believe mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. So so how how it happened, how we did it, me and Anna, I don't know. Because I, when people hear me talk about my mother, they often, after a while, will say, oh, I know you hated your mother. Mm. No, I didn't hate my mother. I feared my mother mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in an enormous fashion. But I never hated my mother, even when she was nasty. I wished she wasn't like that. But no, I feared her. So, yeah, lucky is... Wow, I don't know how we did it. We must have arranged it in outer space for it to be this good. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's what I have to say about that. I've definitely learned not to, as I get older, brag so much and tell mm-hmm. the truth about yeah. how close I am with my mother. Yes. Because I have found more and more and more as I grow up that nobody has this relationship with their mom. And, you know, you don't want to hear about somebody else's fantastic relationship or people yeah. just don't believe me yeah they're like come on they want to pick it apart they they're yeah come it's on. like oh or they're like well a mother shouldn't be like a best friend and i'm like well <laughs> but let's take that apart what does it mean for someone to I be your probably friend fucking said that right but <laughs> on like, this show you know right? no i say like who calls their mom every day who in the yeah. world would do that you know and i have best friends right now who are like you don't call anyone dana like you're really bad yeah. at just calling anyone back yeah but like right but you would say to those people yeah I genuinely love my mom the most and our relationship is the best. And it's like, why is that Mm. authenticity? Yeah. Because yeah, let's blame, let's blame theater. Let's, let's (laughs) acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Let's acknowledge that both the children grew up in theaters Mm -hmm. and around actors predominantly. So that kind of um, vulnerability and openness Mm -hmm. was part of their lives. Yeah. And it's not that, you know, she was truthful and good. And it wasn't that growing up, she didn't give us things to do. Like we had chores, but also we had expectations. As you know, I'm a teacher. And in my Montessori training, we've talked so much about limits and helping and loving them. And when I was in the training and starting working with children, I would call my mom and say, mom, how terrible was I in the grocery store as a little kid? Like, when did I what did I do? What kind of tantrums? How did you deal with it? And my mom would say, what do you mean? You didn't act that way in the grocery store. You found store. the crying baby and soothed them. Yes. <laughs> and, like, and, when, and when I was older, like I didn't, I knew sugar cereals were for Christmas. That is a Christmas present you will get. Okay. A, a pack of those small sugar cereals. Yeah. But sure. sugar cereals do not belong in the home. <laughs> so you don't ask your mom for them if you're grocery shopping. Like, don't be ridiculous. Duh. It's like, I think when people think about, oh, your mom is your friend or whatever, they think, they imagine a friend that's really like enabling you in the worst ways. And right. it's like, but what if we imagined a friend that took care of you and respected you and loved mm. you as you are? Then a mom as a friend is a pretty wonderful thing to be. Okay, right. All the naysayers, all the people who are pissed are about to turn it off. So, um, yes. So, no, I'm kidding. Goodbye. No, right, goodbye. Bye. And yeah. Good luck. <laughs> good luck to you. But what, but what would, but, but has there been a moment though in your history when you were a teenager, when you were going through puberty or college, like, is there a moment of conflict that you had or a moment that you felt either one of you wasn't getting what you needed? And how did you get, how did you get over that? How did you work through that conflict? I can think of literally two arguments. One, 
One I hope is, I can remember these. You I remember this remember one? This. One is I w- it was sixth grade and I wanted to get a haircut and my hair was really, really long and I wanted to donate it to Locks of Love because that's what was important to me. Sure. And of course, we just went to this like hair clips, whatever. Great clips? Great clips? Is that what it's called? Super clips, and great clips. Yeah. Super clips. Mm-hmm. Something in Indiana, some terrible hair salon. And I went and got my hair cut this short. It's my chin, chin length. And my mom said before I went, you can't cut it that short. Don't get it cut that short. It's Mm. going to look bad. And I said, (laughs) step back, mom. I'm doing what I'm doing. Independent woman, okay? I'm 12 years old. I've had my period for two years. Like, this is what I'm doing. You know who you are. Turns out, mom was right. The haircut looked horrible. Yeah, I'm on my photo of that. yeah. They didn't, oh, I'm going to get you one. They didn't thin out my hair. My hair is really thick. So I had a full like triangular helmet, then grew out my bangs into what I lovingly refer to as the mustache bangs. Sure. <laughs> Side note, this is when Jonathan Bode first met me right after this, this haircut. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Friend of the pod, Jonathan Bode. Um, <laughs> excellent man. But that's an argument I remember is her telling me not to get my haircut and being right. And then did um, you, Diane, the, say, like, I told you so or no, because you're not that kind oh of a mom? Oh, my God, or, no. No, oh, see? Oh, well, no. Oh, well. no. No, I told you so. Anna, you can tell about the second argument. I don't remember this one. I'm, I'm proud of myself that I was brave enough to voice the opinion. What I learned about Anna when she was, again, teensy, weensy, weensy, probably less than three months old, was don't argue. When mm. Anna was a baby, if she got mad or upset... And she was crying about something. If you tried to comfort her, she got madder. Mm. And so mm. there are photographs of me sitting patiently next to a little ba- little bassinet <laughs> little thing demon. with little her grumpy. screaming her head off, screaming her head off, mm-hmm. and just waiting till she got tired enough that I could finally pick her up and say, it's okay. So I learned very early. I avoid argumentation anyway uh, with everybody, but I learned very early that it was a not a good thing to do with Anna, not a functional thing to mm-hmm. say why I ought to. Uh, and so I didn't. That actually is what the second argument is. What? I remember when I first talked to you about how when we get upset, I am the fight trauma response and you are the flight And I was upset about it. And I said, I don't remember where we were, but you were laying on the ground and I was sitting close by you and I had a pillow in my lap. And I said, I don't, I just don't think it's fair that when you're upset, suddenly it's like, oh, you're a little rabbit in a hole and you can't even talk to you anymore. And I'm like, how are we going to, you know, there have to be arguments. It may have had to do with my brother and his first wife back when she was a girlfriend and me wanting you to say, this is a bad, this is a bad person. I, I, for some reason, I was upset that you were not fighting the good fight. And I, I remember being upset, realizing that you have a different trauma response than I do. And that's literally, those are the two arguments I can remember. And they're not even arguments. They're like, I don't yeah. remember either of those. And an argument with Anna. I don't do arguments with Anna. When Anna moved to Oregon and we were apart, we were apart for four years, right, Anna? Mm-hmm. Uh, we cried a lot. Hmm. I knew together about on the phone or separate? both. Yeah, yeah, both. Yeah, both. 
That was also when FaceTime was first becoming a thing. It was like mm. the very first. So video chat for the first time. I think that's why Pop got you a new computer. Yes. Because then we yes. could actually see each other. And it was a it was a modern miracle. It was like, mm. we're on Star Trek. This is the holodeck. Like, there you are. Yep. Ah. Yep. That was huge. That was huge. But I knew about the Pacific Northwest. I knew why she was moving here. So there was no argument about that. It was just like, oh, no. Bye-bye. Oh, bye-bye. And not knowing, because I think when I, when I pictured my children, I pictured them like finishing high school and going to college and then, phew, okay, there's that. I never imagined beyond that. I was not a person who was like, oh, I can't wait to dance at your wedding, or I can't wait till you blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it was just like, well, whatever you're going to do, then do and, oh, somebody was making fun of me. Uh, you know, don't go to prison. Don't kill yourself. My brother's a suicide, and mm -hmm. it's just me and him. So that that reminder People have criticized me that, oh, you have a low bar for your kids. <laughs> don't go to prison and don't kill yourself, right? But really, I trusted both of them to be good people, mm -hmm. but farther than that. So I never knew if me and Anna would be together again, like we, in close proximity, like we were. So, yeah, yeah but not an argument. No. Yeah, I'll tell you an argument. When her teeth were falling out when she was a little kid and she wouldn't let anybody help her take her teeth out of her head, she would tie the dental floss on her teeth and then say, I'm going alone into the bathroom. And then she would go and rip her teeth out. And I was I like, I would lock myself in the bathroom and sit up on the sink with some ice cubes and a little bowl. And I worked it out. Okay, I'm a productive. Okay. You, sometimes you got to get stuff done. Okay. Yeah. Yes, so I that was no horrific. Help in removing any of my childhood teeth. Amazing. Wow. But I, I, I don't think I would argue with her about that. <laughs> but that's a pretty good one. <laughs> good thinking. <laughs> teeth Distressing. and haircuts. Distressing. Teeth mm -hmm. and haircuts. You brought up your brother, Dan, and I was going to tell you my mom's sister also, um, she drowned in her 20s and we, they <sighs> believe it was a suicide as well. She had oh like my. learning disabilities. Yeah. They just, they believe that she probably walked into this river. Right. And I think Whoa, that's brave. Very yeah, brave. Right. Very and brave. Knew like, I don't want this life. And I, there, there's a lot to unpack in that. Like my mom being the oldest and trying to be perfect because she needed to stay perfect for like the only child left. Right. This right. I have to be this, this daughter. But I wonder if his death, like I'm assuming that influenced potentially how like the fear of people leaving you. I don't know if that fear of your children going or not being safe or, you know, like, like you didn't think beyond like, don't die, don't go to prison. But like, how did his death influence the way you lived or how you parented? I think it made me spoil my son. Yeah. Because he was a boy and because he wasn't sporty. And he was really, really smart. He got bullied at school, you know, because he, you know, did the sin of carrying around a book uh, instead of a, a basketball or something. And speaking up for himself. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. 
That's something you taught me and Nick from the beginning. And uh, my father is a writer. And so words, a writer as a father and an actress as a mother mm. means means that talking is the skill we have been given. Like, I think some families, it's like, these are expectations of what you need to succeed in this family. Like, we expect you to play an instrument. Mm -hmm. We expect you to be good at sports. We expect you to have a good faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For me and my brother, it's like, no, we expect you to be able to hold a conversation, have a heated debate, and <laughs> vulnerable. speak. And Speak. maybe a dialect. And if you can do a dialect, great. Yes, and if you have a good, like, transatlantic voice, right. then you really got something. Like, <laughs> we want to be able to hear you yeah. from across the room. Right. Diction. Diction, please. Yes. Please. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Diction, yeah. please. So I think I spoiled Nick, and then... He's older. He's the older one. He's he's five years older. Got it. And the reason, I've been criticized for this, uh, the reason Anna exists is because Nick asked for a sister mm. when he was four very specifically said, I want a baby sister. I mm. said, you know, I can do what I can do, but there's no guarantees. It could be a brother. And he said, no, it has to be a sister. And I said, yes, sir. I'll try my best. Wow. And he, yeah, Nick, Nick knew from the moment he was born who was the boss and it sure wasn't me. It was him. And so he gave me my assignment and I delivered. And as far as David's death, because Anna, I was pregnant with Anna when my brother killed himself. Mm. Are, you, are you older? Are you older than him or younger? Oh, me? No, he's my older brother older by brother. two and a half years. Wow. So I was pregnant with Anna when I got the news that David had shot himself. Mm. And my father wouldn't let me come home to my parents because he thought I would miscarry. And I thought, there are women in war zones who are pregnant. Mm -hmm. I'm already six months pregnant. I'm not going to lose, but they wouldn't let me come home. So I was not a part of the immediate wow. the immediate mourning for my brother because they wouldn't let me come home. Wow. My, my dad like drew the line. So, but the thing about my brother and, and whether I felt abandoned, my brother was never nice to me, ever. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, Except when he was in prison. He was in, he, uh, this is a lesson for everybody who's listening. Know, not only know your dealers, but know your customers. He dealt cocaine to the FBI. And, you know, don't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was, uh, he was nabbed in a sting and uh, mm -hmm. he went to prison for 18 months, federal prison in, um, in Michigan. And that was the only time he was nice to me because I wrote to him all the time. And, and I, and he would write me these little letters with, with cartoons. Do you think I saved any of them? No. But that was the only time my brother was nice to me. So as far as being abandoned, mm. no, I was begging my brother for his affection my whole life. So I actually feel closer to him now that he's dead than when he was alive. How? What is that? I'm lucky enough to have predictive dreams and a very active dream life. And David has, has come to be be near me in dreams mostly to save me from monsters <laughs> oh. i don't dream a lot of dreams like that but when i'll have a dream that's big big trouble coming david will appear and be like yeah i got this <laughs> wow. very casual but does he look like david does he look like himself oh or yes yes yeah he'll look just like himself but his best self hmm. 
Oh, mm. absolutely. His best self, his sober self. Amazing. You don't see that often. But when I also got sober 21 years ago, I had an event that would take a long time to tell that made it very clear that he was near me and, and helping. So yeah, I have a great relationship with my brother now. Yeah. That's fascinating, though, to think about holding that grief, even if it was a complicated relationship while you were pregnant with the person who's on this call with us. Do you know if that uh -huh. did anything physically to either of you? Yes, the I know the law. What do you think, Anna? Right? I what can't imagine it wouldn't. It has to. It's yeah. It's somewhere in there, right? Like it. It has to. And I didn't know that story until you just told it. Really? Which part? Which part did you that? know? I didn't know that. That, she was I would, that, that I was in her. I mean, of course, yeah. every baby is in their mom in some capacity because the eggs, da da da. But I didn't know that I was um, in utero when David left. Hmm. Goodness. I also helped with, I helped with all the deaths. So see, you couldn't go and be with David, but I was with you. Then when your father, Gene, died, I was super close with him. I was only two when that happened. And I was closer to Margaret. Margaret was a better grandma to me than she was a mama to yes. Diane. I was going to ask if you'd talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very close with my Diane. My mom's mom is 96 and she's still alive and is wow. a good friend to me. But yes. And she was, you know, my mom and her had a good relationship overall, but it's complicated, right? I'm the granddaughter. We get to have a very yes. different journey yes. and we have through the years. Yeah. So yeah, tell me about Margaret. Anna, you should tell about Margaret. Margaret Condrat was, she would like to say, she said, I'm no apple polisher. That's something she would tell me. She said it so often that I actually made an illustration of it because I'm also an artist and like watercolors. And so she said, I'm, I'm not an apple polisher. And to that, she meant... I'm not going to compliment you for no reason. I'm not going to say something that is not accurate. So she was uh, hard, hardcore, tough, a tough cookie, and also the biggest flirt you've ever seen. We would go, we would walk on the train tracks from her condo to go get Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and she she would and could flirt with any human we saw along the way. We would have elaborate little tea parties on her back deck. Once a bat was under a, a flower box. She also, she was strong and loving and also could cut you quicker and faster than anybody. Mm. Did you ever, did you see her do that to your own mother? Oh, yes. And I saw her do it to me <laughs> as well. She was, she was as sweet as can be when I was little. But as soon as puberty hit and my body shape mm. started changing, mm. because grandma was pretty fit as a fiddle. Grandma was thin and, and muscular oh. and, and put together, you know, like a very tennis type of physique. Mm -hmm. And I remember quite vividly at someone's birthday uh, going to get some ice cream. And she said, are you sure? Are you sure you need some more of that? And, you know, being raised by my mama, mm. I said, I sure am. <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> But you know how those little barbs are. Yep. They'll stick with you forever. And any time in the rest of your life, as you're serving ice cream, you will think to yourself, do you need this ice cream? Yes. And to those voices, I say, yes. <laughs> yes, I do need this ice cream. 
watching your mom and your grandma fight or have a moment of tension is stressful. I remember yes. seeing that as a kid too, like not even against yourself, but against, you know, your your elders. Your did you We would have family meetings beforehand um of kind of like debriefing. Okay, grandma's coming, you know, for mm -hmm. whatever it is, dinner, anything, and you would need to I've always been into protecting any underdog or any member of the family who is currently being attacked or friend as well. Um, I'm that person at a party who will go up to the stranger that's picking on somebody else and be like, do you want to say that again? Mm. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Why are you saying that? Are you, you must feel really insecure because you're battling them. Um, so we would have like little family meetings because my grandma was the meanest to my father. Then probably mom and Nick were tied. And then me, she was usually very sweet too, unless those little like body image or what it means to be a successful woman barbs would come up. So we would talk about like what to do. And I was always like poised and ready to go with like a joke or a story or some sort of like soothing compliment. Like grandma would say something awful to my father and I'd be like, but this thing you cooked is so delicious. Like, you know, you try to soothe the abusive family dynamics and eat mouthfuls of what we now call bitterberry pie because as my grandmother aged, her baking abilities, she would hate for me to be saying this. She's like, it's healthy. It helped you not be so fat. Thanks, Margaret. She would bake amazing pies, but as she got older, she used less and less sugar hmm. and would brag to us and be like, can you believe we'd be eating it? And she'd be like, can you believe I cut the sugar in this recipe in half? And we'd all be like puckered and cry and be like, no, oh, we can't believe it. <laughs> no, we can't it's believe still it. So, it's still <laughs> so good. I told, <laughs> that, I told that story to somebody and they were like, huh, I never heard of bitter berries. <laughs> what are they? And I said, oh, no, any berry can be a bitter berry if you just refuse <laughs> yeah. to put the amount of sugar in the pie that, that is required. <laughs> so she's no berry polisher or an apple polisher. She's not no. doing. She's no. not interested in polishing. No. Was she a big cook? I mean, it sounds like food and body images is, oh, an, is, is an issue, beautiful. but did she love to cook? She, yeah, yeah. She did beautiful work when, when my father was alive and he was an, a retail executive when I was um, sixth grade till junior in high school. They used to have these parties and just the, the hors d'oeuvres mm. she would make. She never hired anybody Wow. to do that kind of work. And she would, they were exquisite and so many. I mean, so I don't know that, I never got the impression that she liked to cook or bake, mm. but that she fucking did it. I'm going to loosely transition into some end of life talk. Great. But because I wanted to talk about the fact that you said you lived apart from each other, you were in Indiana and you were in Oregon and now you're both in Oregon. And Diane, Anna said that you chose Oregon partly, or maybe both of you had a discussion because of the end of life laws. Mm -hmm. And I just thought I'd ask you to speak about that and why that's important to either of you. Well, for me, uh, my father died when he was 62 and he asked me if I would help kill him. Hmm. He uh, had prostate cancer he had become a poster boy for recovery from prostate cancer. And then my brother killed himself and he went completely downhill. And three years later, he was dead. So he was in a lot of pain and he asked me if I would help him. And I said, yes. 
And then before the kit, the suicide kit, uh, which at that time uh, came to you from the Hemlock Society, and now uh, that organization is known as Compassion and Choices, before the kit came in the mail, he died. <sighs> I was with him. I, I was had the honor of being with each of my parents as they died. Uh, and I was so relieved that I wasn't going to have to put a plastic bag on his head <sighs> and wait, right? So I knew because of that experience, and my parents had been members of the Hemlock Society for years. So I had understood the importance of that option. And where were they living? Uh, they were living, uh, they were, they had lived in, uh, in New Jersey, um, in Rhode Island, in Ohio. So no places that that was an option. And Oregon, we moved to only for the Pacific Northwest itself and its exquisite glory. And for Anna and Nick, mm -hmm. that was it. So okay. if it had been, if she had been somewhere else, yeah. I would have moved somewhere else. You would have moved somewhere else, somewhere else so, right? It just worked out that it's like how perfect. It's beautiful. My daughter's here, and end of life. And I have done my research because my when my mom was dying, the plan was that we would get her here, and I found out that you could indeed get some place, figure it out, get the doctor stuff you needed. It was going to take some time. But you could transfer somebody from another state to living here and be able to take advantage of those laws. Uh, as it turned out, my mother was too ill to travel by the time I got to her. And so that plan went down the drain. Hmm. But knowing, I mean, that's like check plus. That's like check plus for Oregon among its many other liberal leanings. That's, it's really important. Because, wow, being in a traumatic situation and knowing you have zero capability to exit is mm -hmm. an awful place to be. You said you had the privilege of being with both of your parents when they passed. Do you remember yes. the last moment with your dad? Um, do you remember that? Even though because you thought it was going to go a certain way and it it wasn't what you had thought? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I was, uh, it was the morning. He died on Halloween. Hmm. He died on Halloween, one of my favorite holidays, holy days. And it was me and my mom and him. He was in a chair. I was sitting on the, the arm of the chair with my arm around, not under his neck, but around the chair. My mother was on her knees in front of him. We knew he was going, and he asked us not to call the hospital because he, so, he was so tired. He had been in so much pain. And I just kept saying the things to him that I had learned from both Tibetan Buddhism and the Edgar Cayce teachings, which my father had shared with me from the time I was in high school. Uh, that's E-D-G-A-R-C-A-Y-C-E. -E. Edgar Cayce is a American psychic who's often known as the father of holistic medicine. There's a lot of, lot of uh, information about the readings he gave. And one of the things he talked about a lot was what it was like to be on another plane of existence. So I was telling my father as quietly as I could in his, in his ear, you know, to go toward the light, toward the light. Everything's fine. We're all fine. Don't worry about it. So I was talking him through and then he was gone. 
when we stayed with him for a while, I learned at that time that I like to, I as a person like to hang out with a corpse for a while rather than call the people, right? Call the people and have them take, take them away. Mm. I was sitting, I made some tea for my mother because she was out of her mind with grief. And then this is, I like to say that my, my, my parents played jokes on me when they were dead. Uh, this was Gene's joke. He was, he was still sitting up and I thought, oh, I would love to hold his hand again. And I, I got the tea and I put it in his hand and he wrapped his fingers around it. And then I moved it and then I held his hand and I didn't realize that you have to be alive for the, your blood to rise to the surface mm. from a warm thing. So even though I had put the teacup in his hand, he still had cold, dead people hands, right? Uh, yeah, so that was that was a big unfortunate, well, fortunate or un, that was a big surprise. That was a shot. That was a punch in the face death shot. But then, you know, uh, after we were with him for a while and we finally called the whatever, the mortuary, and they came, I did get to shake the guy's hands and say, Happy Halloween. I did get to watch the little kids walking to school, seeing a hearse go by and <laughs> wow. watching them go. Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, it was, you know, a real a real treat. I can remember another fight. Yes. What? After the death. For many, many years, my mother on Halloween, we love Halloween in our family, my mother would only dress as death for Halloween. And she dressed as death every year for my whole tiny childhood. And if we're talking about arguments we've had, one of the first arguments I can ever remember having with my mother is when I asked her to stop dressing as death for Halloween. Hmm. And, and what did I she did say? It. What did I she said, say? Okay. Okay. What did she look like as death? Oh well, Go look on, at Anna, tell. look at my mother's face. Okay, let's not let's not mince words here. She's got cheekbones for days, mm -hmm. a pointy chin. Like has the moon come to life? She is angles. She is glamour. So you put a bunch of white clown face on there. And then you take that black and make the death skulls. Oh, you go the in skull, those cheekbones. And you're going in the cheekbones. And the then she can wear anything, like mm -hmm. just spooky dark bags, like mm. just layers of like black mm. lace. Black, just all black. I've had people cross the street to get away from me, and I'm not doing anything but walking down the street with that makeup on, which only take, I don't have a good hand at makeup. I can put that skull death makeup on in three minutes. And everybody's like, holy shit. But she's also an actress. She's also an actress and she's also got her own despair. So she also would do this horrific little spooky moan where she would walk along and be like, oh, <laughs> and like, oh, my stars. So I, I mean, I don't know how old I was. Eight. It was till you were six. It was six. till you were six or seven. So when you were the angel. So do you think you're a child? So it scared you as a child. But do you think there was some, you know, you're older than your years. You're scared of her actual death. Do you think that's underneath? Or is it just a child being scared of spooky things? We're not. I think it was more like, come on, mom, you got to get a new costume. <laughs> okay. Five years of the same. Yeah. Diane, what is your ideal death? Do you have an ideal death? Oh, oh, my. I think I think the standard uh, going in your sleep. 
Mm-hmm. I would imagine is the I like things that are easy. So easy and painless, <laughs> easy and painless is my way of getting yes. through life. And yes. so, yes, having people who have that have a chance to say goodbye. Mm. I think that's really it, right? For the people who are still alive, I think the the tr- a, a real trauma comes when you don't see it coming. Mm-hmm. And then it happens and oh my god. Oh my god how awful it is. So if people get to say goodbye or get to know that someone's ill and, and then you die in your sleep. That'd be then, sweet. Yeah. 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 I wish we could have living funerals. I mean, I, that's something mm-hmm. that I just think is extraordinary. If we could get to hear what they're saying, you know, before we go and or a party feel a, a good food, music, um, you know, be able to be together that's incredible. I wish there were more living funerals. I don't know if you guys talk about that, like your your last wishes or what, what you'd want to be. The whole family knows that Malcolm Doglish is my choice for, for a musician if, he, uh, if he's still alive or around the same age, if he's still alive when I go. It's like, find Malcolm. Can he still travel? What kind of musician or music is he? Oh, he's, uh, he's, um, He's centered in Bloomington. Uh, he's a hammer dulcimer okay. player and a um, writer of choral music. He's a, a stupendous musician. So Malcolm's on the list. What else? What else? That's it, right, Anna? I think we haven't. Yeah, I think when it comes to the idea of a living funeral, it's like I don't see as much of a need for one with my mom because mm-hmm. we always tell each other what we think of each other. Like, even though I certainly would not want her to die later this afternoon, I also feel like it's not that I, I wouldn't have unfinished business. Like I tell her business. Yeah. I tell her things. We, we haven't kept secrets. At the end of every call, like yeah, you make sure you, when you wrap up a call, you're still like, Oh yes. And in the in between, like if you're driving and you see a certain street, you're going to call your mom and leave her a voicemail where you're just singing and going, Balmo, like, and you're doing the, the silliest jokes and love. And we are pretty, we're pretty transparent with our feelings and emotions towards each other. And because she's an actress, we've already kind of had a living funeral because I have watched rooms full of people stand up for standing ovations with mm-hmm. my mom literally as she's had shows about herself yep she put on hamlet for her 50th birthday. yeah that's how i got to forget that i was turning 50 it was super duper wow what did playing hamlet teach you about turning 50 <laughs> or about life you know playing hamlet i think the response of people to my hamlet let me know how important being a comedian is having comic timing and being aware of of the benefit of humor in what is, you know, a tragedy, the tragedy of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. There were scenes uh, that people came up to me. I mean, Bloomington's a pretty uh, sophisticated, intellectually sophisticated uh, town. And yes, it's a university town. And, and yeah, we've got the right? college. And yeah, people came up and said, I never, I never got that scene before. I, and it was only because, thank you, God. And thank you, Margaret. I'm funny because mm-hmm. one of the things that my life with Margaret taught me was that if she was laughing, everybody was safe. 
So make no mistake, I know how to make people laugh. And I rely, I mean, whether there are no other performers in my family, how I got comic timing because it can't be taught, I don't know. Was it a survival mechanism? <laughs> or the book that my mother had in the hospital when she had me was the Encyclopedia of Modern American Humor. They took it away from her because she was busting her stitches laughing. And in that, in that fat book, were a bunch of accented dialect radio scripts. And so one of the things that I, as soon as I could read, and I could read really early, I would sit in my mother's laundry basket and read these vaudeville scripts to her, these vaudeville radio scripts out loud to her with all of the immigrant at that time accents. Mm. So maybe I learned it from that. Um, I don't know. But what I what I learned in Hamlet was how valuable it was to let humor into tragedy. Absolutely. And how revealing it is. Absolutely. Oh, my God. I want those scripts right now. I want to do a three-hander right now. Right? On the they're, mic. Pretty, they're amazing. Oh, my they're gosh. Amazing. I wish we had those. No, I feel the same. I mean, obviously, Anna knows, but there's so much levity through this work that I do. I have to. Um, I wouldn't have made it this far without mm -hmm. laughing. And even when my mom, I'd try to make jokes about addiction or her pain or divorce. And it was hard to to get her to laugh. Obviously, she's the one in it, but I'm the one who's also, it's like um, ricocheting off of her. Her trauma is still hitting me. And I would be like, yeah. I have to make a joke or I have to have some levity or we're never going to get through this, right? And yep, yeah, ah, I love that. I would have loved to have seen you play Hamlet. But in terms of like wills and trusts and objects and inheritance, how do you guys talk about that stuff? I mean, the logistics, the boring stuff. It's so important to talk about it now while we're living because we can really fuck our family if we don't talk about it, right? Yeah. Anna, do you have a living will? No. no. Okay. I do it and, t and her father does. And I know that I put Nick in charge as my uh, uh, healthcare power of attorney, because I thought, thanks a he'll lot. kill me quicker is what <laughs> is what I is what I thought. I don't know if that's true. I know. See, I don't know if I, that's true. I think about that now. It's like, is it really in the right hands? Uh, would no, would he be up to the game? Not. You think it's you? You yes, over your put me draft over your brother. Me in. Yes. yes, why put me why, on the why, field? Why should you Let be in there, coach, in there, over your brother? <laughs> I, well, let me tell you, coach, I have a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of nerves. I have a lot of, uh, you know, I have so much anxiety that I have this uh, disease. I have a condition where occasionally my hair will just mm. fall out mm. in clumps. It's alopecia areata. And it just means you're, you don't think about it so much. And maybe your hair will grow back. Anyway, what all this is to say, in terms of daily life, I'm a very anxious person. But when it comes to the big moments... Like someone has died, you need to make a decision. Someone's bleeding from their head. Then I'm really good. I'm not nervous. I'm able to be a solid, steady hand mover yeah. and a shaker. If your if your mom though, like this, it, it, if your mom was like, "End my life. I'm in pain. This is my wish. This is what I want." Would you try to talk her out of it? Do you know? Have you thought that through for your? Um, I know it's so complicated. 
And you said no, sadly. No, said- I don't. I don't think I would. I think we'd write. I think we'd write a little letter together, probably. Hmm. I still have all the notes she put in my lunchbox. I keep them in a drawer, hmm. and I think it would bring me great joy to just have more words from her. But I know that if she, if she was sick enough that she needed to go, we'd we'd do it. We'd go to the ocean and we'd make it happen. Hmm. And what would happen at the ocean? Remember when I told Diane that her daughter Anna said that, oh yeah, my mom would totally do this interview as long as she didn't have to talk about her own death the whole time. Yeah, maybe subconsciously Diane really did mean that because right here, her mic goes out. During this moment in the interview, Diane gestured to the two of us on camera that she had to move her position And she got up from the camera frame and started moving around the room, adjusting her mic and her chair, while Anna and I chatted about her death and taking her body out to the ocean at the end of her life. It was only about a minute of time that Diane was moving around. But when I downloaded this file, her mother's voice had dropped out of the rest of the episode. Diane was gone from the conversation. This witchy woo-woo glitch happened at this specific and otherworldly moment, a delicate, personal, and intimate exchange between a mother and a daughter, and the mother's voice had vanished. Woo-woo, or just a weird microphone connection. Who knows? But luckily, iCloud exists, and we had a backup. Diane, the mother, was back. This was just because even though my computer was all juiced up, now it's telling me it's tired. So I just had to plug in and I'm just going to shift where I'm standing. Can you still see me and hear me? Of course. The fact that your computer did that right as your child was talking about your end of life is not lost on me, but Uh it's not lost on all of us. The computer was like, nope, nope, nope. Okay. Yeah. We're still, we're still groovy. We're still groovy. groovy for now, mom. For now. Yeah. Yeah. For Take now. We're groovy beach. for We're now. talking about taking you to the beach. Oh, potentially. Yeah. yeah if you were, if you were knocking on the cosmic door, yeah, we'd take you to the beach because the ocean is bigger than us. And my mama loves the ocean. I love the forest. And we'd get her some fresh sea air and then hopefully give her some high quality drugs. I would love her to leave, leave earth in a, in a joyful bubble mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um or sleep sleep would be best but i would love it if it if i was completely conscious and not drugged i don't know if that's even a possibility right to be if you were indeed bringing about your own demise is it possible to have it both ways we're back to easy and comfortable again um whether it's possible to be pain-free mm. and dying and still completely awake con- yeah, and conscious. Yeah. And clear. Yeah. Oh, maybe an organ. Yeah. And then yeah. you just wink and say, that's, that's all folks. <laughs> that's, to, to be or not to be, and she's out. She just goes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to be clear, to be conscious or not conscious. She's out. Yeah. She's here. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, look at that wave. Hmm. I mean, I just have to say, pretty spectacular that through no machinations of your own that we're talking today 
on the anniversary, the first year anniversary of Joe Black's departure from this plane of existence, getting through that first year for anyone who is in mourning is an exceptional, an exceptional trip through everything that time is for us. Every sunrise, every sunset, every I wish you were here or I wish you were different or I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish is um, I hope everything is easier for you now after the first year is, has come and gone. It's really something that Thank you. today is the day. It is. And uh, how many years has it been? It's seven Dana? years today, Six, Diane. seven? Yeah, seven. Yeah, 2016. And that first year, I talk about this a lot too. My first year was full of logistics. And I liked that, a lot of that. It was like, well, I can check this off. I can I can focus on the to-dos, right? I don't have to fucking think about the fact that she's never coming back. Yes, um, yes. I can think about the the will and the trust or the this or the that or selling her furniture I don't have to deal and and it's weird I have a podcast around the loss of my mom and grief and yet I I now kind of forget the date I never thought about April 16th I just forgot I was like oh her death and which means Diane that the weight is shedding and it, it's it's becoming less burdensome and it's more joyful and I'm happier and I miss her but I it's a lightness. There's a lightness to to my grief. Anyway, how do you have advice, Dan, for for anybody listening about that first year? I mean, I know complicated relationship with your mom, and your but you lost you still lost her. You, you lost your mom. You lost your dad. Talk talk to me about that, and talk to our listeners. I just watch it happen over and over again. I've I've had a lot of experience with astrologers. I've had a lot of experience with psychics. My mind is very open to what happens when somebody ceases to inhabit the body that they are given uh, in this lifetime. And because of my almost casual and incredibly optimistic by some people's uh, standards, ideas about death, I mean, I got big plans for when I'm dead. I, I really do have uh, big ideas for what I'm going to do on the other side. It allows me to celebrate more easily with someone and also be open to seeing what the depths of mourning can do to a person, to a family. I have a friend who has lots of people die on her, lots of people. And then her father finally died in her arms on her birthday. And mm. her sister was really mad that her father had died on the other child's birthday. And it was like, wow, if you want to talk about making trouble where there isn't any, what I see with people and death is often it just serves as a kickstart to all kinds of, but why aren't you like this? And why aren't you saying that? And they never were that good to me, and they were better... Instead of finding gratitude everywhere you can. So know that in that time of coming to grips with the death of someone close to you, the more you can say thank you to that person, to whoever you think 
is in charge. If you think a higher power is in charge, then thank you that I ever knew them. Thank you for the way they looked at me that day. Thank you. I mean, I really think that we underestimate the functionality of the tool of gratitude. So if you can find something to be grateful for, go after that. And not so much about, oh, I forgive so-and-so for something. It's like forgiveness you can't go at straight on. It's a tangential enterprise. But gratitude, you can go right for it, and it will reward you in peace or more peace. And now, now we'll hear... A now commercial cream. for toothpaste <laughs> and also yeah. denture cream. <laughs> you also, I want to, you said you have big plans for when you're dead. Can you share one of oh, them? Oh, I do. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Because once I'm dead, I get to do the entire Shakespeare canon and I get to cast sure. anybody who's dead already through the ages. And I and I get to do all those shows because I haven't gotten to do enough Shakespeare in my life and I'm mad about it, still really pissed off. So that's only one of the many hmm. things I'm going to do um, on the other side. Did you want your daughter to follow in your footsteps? I mean, you seem obviously like you're you're very loving and you say you do whatever you want, Anna, go live your dreams. But is there a part of you that wanted her to continue acting? Well, I think everybody thought when Anna graduated high school that she would become a professional actress, right, Anna? Anna can sing uh, like Jesus on a good day. And uh, I mean, I was grabbed by uh, singing teachers when Anna was like six years old. Uh, somebody was doing their PhD in um, vocal work, and this lady uh, came and dealt with all the kids, took samples of the voices of all the kids in Anna's choir, and she grabbed me. I mean, Anna was like eight years old, nine years old, and she said, do you know that your daughter has the mature voice of a 35-year-old at age eight? And I said, Okay. She's a good singer. And the lady was like looking at me like I was supposed to do something. And I was like, I don't know. I'll, I'll tell her you thought she did good. So people were surprised that Anna wasn't going to be um, a professional performer. But also, Anna doesn't like to be told no. And if I know something about being a performer uh, in America, you better like being told no. And being mm -hmm. a woman, dear God in heaven. So... Sure, it would have been great, but Anna's work in Montessori is mm, gotta say I think it's holier work, and I'm all for mm. I'm all I'm all for the holy thing. So yeah, I think she's doing more important work. But in the in a way, it's the same because we're being authentic, moment to moment, in the moment, every moment. Hmm. Is that like, um, I mean, what is the mission? It's that whole authenticity of, thing. What is the Montessori like mission? What would you, how would you sum it up? Peace. Uh, Maria Montessori was uh, almost won the Nobel Peace Prize. She was a real agent for peace and independence and respect for children. So in the smallest little bundle, it is a, it is a child-focused, neurologically sound curriculum and pedagogy based in peace, independence, love, and all of the myriad of ways that children grow and develop and honoring their own way. Do you consider teaching mothering? Yes. 
especially when they call you mama by accident and dad too. But it's about you, like when you're, when you're comfortable, this is true for everybody, right? Like hierarchy of needs. When you're comfortable, when you're safe, you're able to do more difficult things and be challenged. And so the whole idea for Montessori is we're going to make an environment and cultivate a little culture where you are loved and supported and respected. And then we can teach you how to read because you'll feel safe and you'll mm. feel ready. So that's what I do. We all deserve that. Yeah. I think so. And write notes to we each other. We all deserve that. That's also what I teach. I teach good yeah. cursive so that you can write notes. So when you're dead, the people that are still alive can go, oh, here's a thing I really appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, Anna knows what happens now, but I'm usually I'm talking to one person, Diane, and I say, tell me your mom's name and how you're feeling about her right now in this moment after this conversation, what is coming up for you? And it's the last question and stuff can happen, right? It's like people will say, I didn't cry the whole call. I did it. I made it. And then I'm like, well, we're not done yet. Right. But, and sometimes it's just a moment, right. Of, of reflection. So to me, because I've never done it with two living mother, you know, a, a mother and a child, I want to hear, I want you to hear your child say your name and how she's feeling about you right now in this moment. She can talk right to you. She can tell us how she feels, however you want to do it, Anna. And then I want you to say your daughter's name and how you're feeling about her right now today in this moment, what's coming up for you. So I'm going to start with you, Anna. Thank you. Diane June Conrad. I am proud of you every day, and I love you so much. How I feel about you is I can't wait to play board games and eat something good with you soon. Maybe cheese or onion potato based. Uh, I love that you are strong and you are funny and you stand up for what's right. Thank you for being my mama. I really appreciate it. Okay, must be my turn then. Anna Condrat Artizoni is my daughter, and how I feel about her is that it's hard to believe I deserve to be associated with her for all these years. Her goodness and energetic commitment to this world is so great. People just don't even appreciate it enough and think that I exaggerate when I talk about what Anna is. I would be honored to assume that I was a good enough spirit that somebody said, we'll send Anna to her this time. And I say, yes, what a treat. I get to be with Anna? Oh my God. Yeah, so that's what I have to say about Anna because she's top of the line, top of the line. Ever since I've heard it, from the first time I heard it on the microphone to now, and every time I've had to listen to this episode as I've been working on it, that last line by her mother, Diane, is just extraordinary. 
and I haven't stopped thinking about it. <laughs> and I and I wasn't sure how to articulate it because I don't think I knew in that moment, the, the day I did this call on the anniversary of my mom's death, I, I, I was so moved and and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And, and I think today, for me, when I th- hear that line, that her daughter is top of the line, top of the line, she gets to be with Anna, what a trip. I think in that moment when I first heard it, I was deeply moved because I thought, yeah, I think my mom would say that about me. And I was like, am I under the illusion of that? Or am I disillusioned in my assumptions? Am I reimagining this relationship? Am I erasing all of the bad? Am I just missing all of the, 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 the trauma and our complicated relationship? And I was like, no. No, yeah, sure. I didn't call my mom on, enough and we got into fights and I started a whole podcast about <laughs> our complicated relationship. But I still think if you blew off all the dust and you looked at the core relationship that we had, we were not best friends and we certainly had conflict and we didn't start out as best friends and we certainly didn't end as best friends. But I think my mom would have said, Dana, I get to be with Dana. Dana is top of the line, top of the line. <laughs> so funny when I cry on the mic because I always feel like you think I'm you might I might be being performative, and I'm like, should I cut it out? Should I keep it in? Is it real? Is it right? Vulnerability, but it's real. I I love imagining my mom saying that to me, and I'm not re I'm not saying that Diane was saying this line to me. She was saying it to her daughter and I wasn't trying to pretend to be the person receiving it. And yet, the more I hear it, the more I think about my mom. And I want to go back to the days where she left me notes in my lunchbox and she left me notes in my sleepover bag for summer camp. And she told me I was a love of her life on a cake for Valentine's Day. And she kept all my theater programs and she just loved me. Dana, I get to be with Dana? She's top of the line. And if I could blow the dust off and go back and look at my mom and say, I also think you're top of the line. And I'm so grateful I got to be with you. And that you are forever a part of my legacy. The good, the bad, the messy, the dark, the light, the shadows, all the phrases you want to use. She's mine in this one lifetime that's what I got. And uh, I'm grateful for it. And I'm so grateful for Anna and Diane. Happy Mother's Day. Thanks for being here. I'll talk to you soon. But before I leave you, I wanted to play a recording that Diane did of a dream she had many years ago about the theater being the ultimate mother, her life in the theater. And underneath it, you're going to hear original music composed by the Malcolm Dahlquish, the musician that Diane and Anna talked about earlier in this episode when Diane imagined her perfect death. She knew she wanted Malcolm's music playing. And lucky for me, he's alive and lives in Bloomington, Indiana. And I called him on the phone and we had an amazing conversation and he loves the idea of the podcast. And he had just gotten back from Australia. He was jet lagged, but he was pumped. And he said, I love Diane and Anna and I would be honored. Let me make you something to play underneath her dream. 
So this is Diane and Malcolm Dalquish. Enjoy. I had this dream early in the year 2000. The first scene was practicing for a curtain call. It seemed like the theater for my high school. We practiced and started to exit, and I joked, right into the wall, as I saw that my face was nearly knocked into the cinder block wall stage left. Then all the people disappeared, and I was alone in the theater. No lights. I was backstage, just inside the curtain on stage left. I saw a door outlined in light from the outside. It was in the backstage wall, stage right, and I headed for it. I got to center stage. The curtain was closed, and I remembered all the happinesses I had had in theaters, and I practiced a dance pose from Bye Bye Birdie, which I did as a senior in high school. Then, poof, I was back at my starting point downstage left, near the curtain's edge. I started toward the door again. There was no work light, so I walked, scooting my feet forward along the floor, holding my hands out in front of me in case there was something I might run into. At center stage, there was a rope hanging from the grid or the flies. I grabbed it and started to swing. My body was completely relaxed, and I swung very slowly in a way that defied gravity, stage right to stage left, diagonally upstage to downstage, like an incense sensor being swung. I felt as if I were in the arms of the most perfect mother. I was so relaxed, completely happy, very safe. I wondered how I was doing it, since I remembered only the single rope that was hanging there. And then I saw that what I was actually in was a bag made out of a white quilt from my daughter Anna's bed. It was shaped like a raindrop, and that's what I was inside of. The gravity-defying, slow swinging went on for a while. That feeling in the blanket swing, in the arms of the theater, my best mother, was one of the clearest, richest feelings I've ever experienced. And Anna was part of that. The third season, which is crazy to say, of I Swear on My Mother's Grave podcast would never be possible without our editor, Amanda Mayo from Cassiopeia Studio. I also want to thank our music composer, Adam Ollendorf, our graphic designer and illustrator, Meredith Montgomery, our copywriter, Rachel Claff, and Tony Howell and Jonathan Freeland for all of their work on our beautiful website. And as always, thank you to Heather Bodie for her emotional, spiritual, social, physical, for, well, for all of the help over all of the years. Thank you. And all of you, thank you for listening, for subscribing, for reaching out, for telling all of your friends. I know that this club, this complicated, messy club, isn't fun to be in, but I'm so glad that you're here. I couldn't do this without you. So thank you for being a part of this community. And if you haven't signed up for our newsletter, please do so at our website, which is danablack.org. Not just because I want to sell you stuff, but 
because I want to keep talking to you and you talking to me. So go check that out. There's personal stories. I'll tell you about the season and you'll learn about some live retreats that we're curating one retreat at a time. So yeah, thanks for being here. I hope you'll come back. Will you come back? Don't leave me like my dead mom. You know what I mean? Come back, please. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.